Open them to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to look at Ezekiel today. I want to talk to you today about the beginning of knowledge. And again, we're reading through here and we're going to read through Ezekiel. Um, Hopefully we'll share some things that will be helpful to you. Um, I'm going to read a couple of introductory scriptures here before we do that. By the way, my title comes from Proverbs 1, um, 7. Is that right? I just said that didn't sound right. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But first, I want to talk to you about Lent. Um, I would encourage you to do anything you wish to do or that the Lord lays on your heart to um, enhance your relationship with him. If there are um, opportunities that you have to give special time of devotion and study, then I would encourage you to take advantage of those things. That should be a personal um, response to you from the Lord. And, and you might say, well, it's my idea, and uh, well... Okay, but you didn't get the idea by yourself. That's what the Lord and the Holy Spirit do. Give us ideas. Um, But I want you to be very careful in the process of doing that. Um, It is so easy for us to add things to the gospel. Let me read to you just a couple things. Matthew 6, this is Jesus speaking. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may be seen of men to fast. Verily I say to you, they have received their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That, that you may not be seen of men to fast, but of the Father who is in secret. And thy Father who sees in secret shall reward you. So, beware of religious activities that mark you. Okay? We just came from one this past week. So, just... It's a, it's a religious thing. It's not scriptural in the least bit. It's just something we do. And what happens over a period of time is someone says, well, this is a great thing. This is what I did. And then someone else says it, and then pretty soon two or three people do it, and then a handful, and then a group, and then a, a congregation, and then a denomination, and so on. And then a few generations later, we have this tradition going on that may or may not be rooted in Scripture. It may not be a bad tradition, but here's what's bad about it. It's not rooted in Scripture. Our activity, all of our activity, our thoughts are all to be um, directed and ground, directed by and grounded in this book, not in the traditions of men. 
Now, we're in a we're in a time where we do special stuff. Um, let no man therefore ju- Colossians two sixteen through twenty three. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a feast day, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is Christ's. Let no man rob you of your prize by a voluntary humility and worshiping of the angels, dwelling in the things which he hath seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast the head, from whom all the body being supplied and knit together through the joints and bands, increasing with the increase of God. If you died with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to ordinances? Handle not, nor taste, nor touch, all which things are to perish with the using, after the precepts and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will-worshiping, will-worship, and humility, and severity to the body, but are not of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let me paraphrase that for you. If you feel more spiritual because you didn't eat over Lent, you're less spiritual than if you had eaten and given thanks to God. If you feel more spiritual because of something you did, you're less spiritual than if you had given thanks to God for all that He has done. And a lot of these religious activities, not just this time of year, but all through the year that we get involved in, are, are designed to make us feel good about ourselves. Not necessarily to give honor and glory to the Lord. So as you work your way through this season, someone asked me years ago, what are you doing for Lent? And I said, for Lent, I gave up Lent. And I'm very serious about it. I want to be guided by this book. Not by the traditions of men or by the traditions of a denomination. Now, if you do those things and you find blessing in them, go ahead. That's, that's between you and the Lord. Just what I read to you today, I, I made some comments, but what I read to you was basically all I have printed here is Scripture. So... Don't bring yourself under bondage when you don't need to. And if you're so inclined, say amen. amen. <laughs> okay. Psalm 137. We're going to go back to, uh, we're going to, back to our topic here and back to our subject. Um, I've used almost a third of my sermon. Uh, wow. Good for me. All right. Um, let me read to you just... A little bit here because it's going to set the stage for what we're going to deal with here. Psalm 137, and I, I'm, I'm going to read the first six verses. I could read more, but I won't. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. And that's that. <laughs> 
That's L-Y-R-E-S. I know some of you were picturing they found an unscrupulous person and strung him up, but that's not what it meant. Okay? It was a, it was a stringed instrument. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got distracted by that. It's just, I was just picturing what you were thinking. Um, let me go back. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick in the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So what's happened here is the psalmist is writing from the period of time that we're going to be looking at here in the book of Ezekiel. They're in captivity. And in their captivity, they hung up their lyres. They're, they're, there's nothing for them to rejoice and sing about. Their, their nation has been destroyed. Their city has been um, sacked and ruined. And they've been taken captive. And it's in that context where their tormentors, they actually said that, their tormentors said, sing us, one of your, sing us one of your nice Jewish songs. And they said, we, we couldn't sing. So we're going to look at Ezekiel. This is all in the 6th century B.C. And uh, his name means God strengthens or may God strengthen. Now, Ezekiel was born of a, of a priestly family, um, and, and so he was a priest. It says that in the opening verses. Um, he, most of Ezekiel's prophecies, and you'll see this, let me say not most, but more of his prophecies are dated than any of the other prophets you're going to read. So a lot of his oracles and the things that he see begin with this is the year of this king and so on and so forth and he gives you the time. Give you a, just a brief outline. Chapters 1 through 24 talk about the judgment of Israel. Now, all of this hopefully will fall into place here in a minute. 1 through 24 talk about the judgment on Israel. Um, chapters 25 through 32, he focuses on judgment of other nations. And in chapters 33 through 48, and there's some give and take in this, but that ends with hope, where he talks about the restoration of Israel. And as you read through this, and we only got into a few chapters of it this week, but as you read through this, you'll see that Ezekiel has a lot to say about end times. And there's lots of things that, that Bible scholars now say, you know, this is, this is going to apply to the end. And uh, uh, it talks about the eventual triumph of God over sin and over evil and God setting up his kingdom. So we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get through there. I already mentioned he was of the priestly class. He was married, but there's no record of any kids. He prophesied from the ages of 30 to 50, which under the law was the time when a priest ministered. A priest would begin his ministry at age 30 and end it at age 50. Ezekiel was in that first group of captives 
Jehoiachin had been king. Um, the Babylonians conquered Israel, so to speak. And it, was, it wasn't true just of them. It was true in history that these people, these uh, foreign kingdoms would knock on the door. Hello. They would knock on the door by sending an army. <laughs> I mean, oh, that gets your attention. Hey, there's an army camped out here. They'd knock on the door and they would say, surrender or die. And they usually meant it. Because if you didn't surrender, they would not, they didn't want the next group to think they could get by with fighting. So they, they would say surrender or die. And we saw this in Jeremiah, where, where Jeremiah said to them, if you surrender, it will go well. And if you don't, you're going to be destroyed. And they didn't. So they would knock on the door. They'd say surrender or die. And they, and they, they basically said, we're, we're not going to fight. They disposed the king. His name was Jehoiachin. He was only 18 years of age. They took him to captivity where he lived the rest of his life. And they put in a new king. And they, all, they not only took Jehoiachin, who was the king, they also took a group of captives. And among those captives was uh, Ezekiel and probably Daniel. They, they were taken. Again, Ezekiel was a priest. He was of the priestly class. They were taken from Israel and taken to Babylon, and there they lived. Ezekiel's entire ministry was in exile. There's no record that he ever returned to Jerusalem. That's why I read to you the 137th Psalm by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and they required us a song. And we're going to see, we're going to read a couple of verses today where where it, it, he's at, he, he doesn't call it a river, he calls it a canal, where he actually goes and that's, that's where he is. He's commiserating with some of the other captives who were there. Um, he probably died in Babylon, never returning to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jeremiah prophesied that that captivity would be 70 years, that God was going to exact a year from them for all of the time that they dishonored him, dishonored his Sabbaths and his sabbatical years, Sabbath years, and so on and so forth. Ezekiel's book is one of the longest books in the Bible. And Ezekiel spoke forcefully. And he used strong language. Uh, we saw that Jeremiah did also. Now, stop and think with me for just a minute. And again, I tried to read the 137th Psalm so you get a little bit of idea of what's going on. Ezekiel's entire ministry was a time of confusion. We know that the prophets, before they went, told them. And then, uh, and then Jeremiah wrote a letter. He says, listen... You guys who are in captivity there, you're not going to be there for a little bit. Those people who are telling you you're going to be delivered soon are, are, not, are lying to you. And, and you will remember what he said. He said, buy homes and, uh, or build homes and start families and labor for the good of your community because you're going to be there a while. And, of course, it was Jeremiah who said you'd be there 70 years. So he knew that those people who were young, who went, would probably live and die there, and maybe the next generation would get the return. So, uh, but it was a time of confusion. They, they were in a new land. They had new rulers. And as we read from the psalm, there, sometimes they were, they were tormented. There was, there was spiritually this apparent abandonment by God. 
And we, we talked about how Lamentations was basically a question, God, how did this happen? How could you let this happen, God? And even in the midst of knowing that it was God's judgment, there's this, there's this struggle on the inside about how do we, how do we, how do we get out of, how do we get into this position? What did we do? And I remember actually reading from the notes that I brought to you last week that it's all made worse when we realize it's our fault. So it, 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 that's, that's just human nature. So in this time of confusion in a new land with new rulers where, where, and sometimes they were being tormented and, and an apparent abandonment by God, they know, they, they knew, if they listened to the prophets, they listened to Jeremiah. Now, stop and think with me again, folks. They did not have a book of Jeremiah to read. They didn't have a book of Ezekiel to read or a book of Daniel to read. That stuff was being written. They, they would hear maybe some of these people. And, and we know that Jeremiah wrote a scroll. We, we know that he wrote a letter, so they maybe saw some of that stuff. But they didn't have the resources that you and I have even to know about what their situation was. So, But they, they knew there was judgment, and some of them... And, and by the way, not all of these people were evil people. Not all these people were people that, that deserved what happened to them. So, in the midst of all that, and we're going to look at it in just a minute, in chapter 1, God gives Ezekiel a vision. And that vision in, created within Ezekiel an emphasis on the greatness and the holiness of God. And, and that was counterposed with the sin of God's people and the circumstances of God's judgment. And we won't go over all the sins and all that. We've, we've, we've talked about that in the past. So there is now a message of repent, which is why in these first few chapters, as I mentioned, that first section there, he, he, he goes over their sin. This is why you're in judgment. This is what's happening. This is a judgment that God's bringing on you. That's repent. And then at the end, he closes with faith and hope because he says God is in charge and he's going to restore all this. Look, look with me at chapter 2 and let's look at, look at some of this um, today and kind of get a, a picture about where he is. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, chap, chapter 2 is not a very long chapter and it's a continuation of chapter 1, which we'll read in just a second. So he sees this vision in chapter 1. In chapter 2 it says, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet. And I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. (laughs) That ought to be a part of every bit of ministerial training. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. 
and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. I won't go over all the times. You probably, you probably heard it as I read that. How many times he talks about their rebellion. He also says they're impudent. They're not, so there's a certain amount of pride that's involved in rebellion, isn't there? Even if it's just a subtle, subtle thing. I don't think I'm going to do that right now. That's, there's a certain amount of pride in that. God just zeroes in and says, I'm sending you to these people, and they are rebellious people. Look with me at chapter 3. I'll just read some more. Verse 4. He said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if, if I sent you to such... They would listen to you, but the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel will have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks. For they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. So we get a good picture here of his calling, that he's supposed to say what God says, even if the people don't respond. Now, there is... There's so much I could say about this. Um, I'll talk more about it here in um, in a minute. So much, so much of modern Christianity, so much of modern pulpit ministry is designed to entertain and please. Not necessarily to tell truth. Especially when truth is hard. That's why in so many churches, so many evangelical churches today, you won't hear about repentance. Repentance is a hard word. It implies that you need to quit doing what you're doing. Well, who wants to be told they need to quit doing what you're doing? Don't do that. You know, God's saying, don't do that. Well, we don't want to hear that. And he said, you, you know, don't be dismayed. Um, I, I've made your, I've, I've given you a hard head. That's basically what he said. Um, I'm surprised you guys didn't start making jokes in your head right there when I read it. Harder than flint, I have made your forehead. What is he saying? He said, as stubborn as rebellion, as stubborn as they are, they're rebellious and as stubborn as they are, I will make you stronger than them. You keep telling my message. Verse 15. I came to the exile to the exiles at Tel Abib, who were, del- who were dwelling by the Shebar Canal. 
And I sat where they were dwelling. And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. At the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if I warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have been delivered from your, you will have delivered your soul. And I, I'm going to stop reading there. I think you know, I think you understand the, the concept that's there. So he, he gives him this calling and says, I'm laying this message on you. By the way, I didn't ask him. I'm laying this message on you. I'm sending you to a hard people. What, it, what, what did I read? Briars and, and thistles and what? Scorpions. Again, that ought to be ministerial training. Come and sit among the briars. So, he says, I, I, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, here's what we're going to do. And by the way, if you don't share my message to those people and they die, your blood is on, their blood is on your hands. I'm sure there's people who've read that that says, well, that's not fair. Now, we haven't read it yet, but the other side of this is the things that Ezekiel saw. He saw things that when we read them, we struggle to even comprehend them, though he's put them down in words for us to read. And we'll, we'll read that in just a second. Verse Chapter 3, um, verse 22, I, I read a little bit more here. And the hand of the Lord was on me, and he said to me, Arise and go into the valley, and there I'll speak to you. So I arose and went out into the valley. And behold, the glory of the Lord stood there like the glory that I had seen by the Shabar Canal, and I fell on my face. He's overwhelmed. And he says, but the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me. And then he, and he told him what to do. I'm just going to stop there, because uh, he, he, the compensation for all this is there is such a thing on this earth, was the fact that he had communion with God, and he saw things from God, and he heard things from God that no one else did. And, and frankly, he probably was compelled by the glory that he saw. Ministry is not a profession like a doctor or a lawyer or a trade, like a builder or a mechanic. And woe to those who treat lightly the call of God by either entering or exiting without, uh, without awareness of, that his call is awesome. You don't just go to school because it's one of your options, I'm going to go do this. We read earlier in Lamentations where the prophet said, I tried to keep my mouth shut and it burned like a fire in my bones. All right. So let me get to the main part of this. What did God show to these rebellious, number one, and two broken people? 
the beginning of knowledge. What, what did these people need to know to get them through that time of captivity? Take, let me go back to chapter 1. And we're going to read a bunch of this. So just back up to chapter 1. Because the main part of this, that what I want you to see today, is the calling of this minister and what his message was. Now I have down here the whole chapter. I don't know if I'm going to read it all. But it says, in the in, we're going to start. In the 30th year, the fourth month of the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Shabar Canal, the heavens were opened. And I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Shabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And, I, and as I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north. Now, let me just... You can read along with me, but if you want, I'll try to read a little slower. Try to close your eyes and picture this stuff. I, was, I listened to this on my phone as I came in, plugged it into my car, I was listening to it, and I didn't close my eyes because I was driving, okay? But, but I was trying to listen to this, and as I was trying to ponder what he read, the, I found myself, the, what was being said, the guy was two or three verses ahead of me as he was reading it. Because there's so much here. As I looked and behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces. And each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight. And the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, and the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash. Of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. 
And the rims of the four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. I'm going to skip down verse 24. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And when they stood still and let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance, like sapphire. And seated upon the likeness of a throne was the likeness of, with a human appearance. And upward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness round around him, like the appearance of, of the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking, and that brings us to chapter two where we started reading earlier. So you say, what about his call? Well, he sees this thing that, that we, we read it and we go, what in the world is he, you know, and I've seen pictures. And I, frankly, the pictures were not near as neat as what he said. You know, wheels within wheels and eyes and wings and all that stuff. He saw all this. And there was also in it this mystery. You could catch it. There was a mystery in it because he said that one on the throne had the appearance had the appearance of a, of a human. And, and what was the appearance of his waist and up? And what was the appearance of his waist and down? So as he look at it, he's, 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 he's also knowing that there's something there that he can't quite put his finger on. And so he uses the word appearance. There's this, there's this fantastical, gloriful thing that, that, that he sees. He sees something that's almost unimaginable in glory and power. And that begins his ministry. And that's what God's people needed to hear. They needed to hear about the glory of God. They needed to hear about the nature of God. We need to hear and contemplate His power and His glory and His holiness. Folks, without that, there is no point of reference for our smallness. If we don't stand at some point, if we, if we can't grasp at some point how wonderful and big God is, then there, there is no point of reference for our puniness. We, we tend to enlarge ourselves in this world. We think that we are bigger than we are. Our smallness also accentuates our sin and rebellion. 
I've used the illustration before. I, I read it decades ago that us in our rebellion is like an ant standing on a track shaking his little ant fist at a locomotive. Now, if that, does, if that seems a little absurd to you, I can assure you that our condition before God is more absurd than that. You think about what he saw, where he struggles with words, and he's not the only one. You get when you read the Revelation of John and what John saw. John struggled with words also. He couldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't figure it all out. So our 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 smallness in the face of God should accentuate. How ridiculous and silly and foolish and repugnant is our selfish rebellion against him. And we don't hear about it. I'm reading an interesting biography of a fellow from the earlier part of the 20th century who understood this and began, almost all of his sermons were about God. So... Um, Theology proper, basically, is the doctrine of God. And so, he, he began, because he knew. He knew if people don't understand who God is, they'll never understand who they are. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We think we know all these things, but we don't have any idea about Him. We don't have any idea about Him because we don't look at the book or we don't think about it. You know, we, we, we sang about how, how great thou art, you know. That we see God in in, in the creation and the and the things that He's made, and and certainly that's true. And for a believer, that ought to that ought to bring us to a place of humility. Jesus said, "Why do you worry about things?" He said, "There's not a one of you who, by worrying, could add one little bit to your height." Thing we can't we. We can't do it. You know, Scripture says what? All flesh is what? Grass. It's gone. It's here. It blooms. And it goes away. All. Let me close this with just a couple more thoughts that go along with this. What do these people need to hear? They needed to hear the, the glory and power and the holiness of God. That's why Ezekiel saw his message. That's what his message to them was. God is glorious and God is holy. And without that, there is no point of reference for our smallness and, and our smallness accentuates our sin and our rebellion. I, I, I was listening to a podcast this week from Doug Wilson called The Marketplace of Ideas. And as he was going down through it, it basically was about um, apologetics and how we do our apologetics. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you just a section of it, okay? It says, Evangelists and apologists are not called to be merchants in the marketplace of ideas. The mission is to go out into the world to declare and not to display their wares. 
The reason we drift into presenting Christ the option for your felt needs instead of Christ the risen Lord is because this latter approach being biblical creates moral obligation. And when this happens, people get agitated. <laughs> and then when he and then he quotes he quotes Acts twenty four twenty five, which is, has to do with Paul. And as he reasoned of righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was terrified and answered, Go thy way for this time, and when I have a convenient season, I will call you unto me. And then he, and then he goes on with his um, little verbal essay. And when people are agitated, they sometimes act out, and sometimes the apologist gets in trouble. Sometimes Felix leaves him in jail, which he did. And you can read that in the book of Acts. Now, why did I share all this? Because the reason, listen, we're not, we're, he, he puts his, folks, he puts his finger on exactly what I was told to do as a preacher. To, to go into the marketplace and present your ideas to convince people. And we have famous American evangelists from the past, like Charles Finney and Billy Sunday, who, who Finney flat out said that, that he doesn't need God to win converts. So that's why he said, the reason we drift into, uh, Wilson says, the reason we drift into presenting Christ, the option for your, uh, the option for your felt needs instead of Christ the risen Lord is because this latter approach being biblical creates moral obligation and that makes people agitated. In other words, when you say God is holy, they don't like that. John the Baptist says to Herod, uh, "What your marriage is not legal you married your brother's wife. And what did Herod do? Put him in jail. And who was really angry at him? Herod's wife. And when she had the opportunity, she had him killed. Was John the Baptist correct? Yes. He created a moral obligation. You're not doing what God says. What do we need to hear in this day and age? We need to hear that God's holy. We need to hear that He's powerful and glorious. We need to know that if we repent, He will forgive us. But if we do not repent, we're under judgment. Listen, let me close with this. John 3.16. We all know this verse, don't we? Probably we could quote it. Um, most of us, I can't. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm looking it up here. I can't even find John. There it is. Uh, we all know what John 3.16 says. We've, we've heard it a gazillion times. Oops. That's four. Listen. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only Son, that whosoever or whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. This is verse 17. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. Whoever believes is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We live in a world condemned in sin because of rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus came and offered himself as the solution to that, but in pride and rebellion and arrogance, we reject it. And how have we responded to that? And in too many churches, we have made the gospel about us instead of about God. The gospel starts with God. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's why the first chapter of Ezekiel and, and these beginning chapters where Ezekiel talks about his calling have to do with all the things that he saw from God. It begins with God. He, he didn't, he, God's message to him was not, I understand the, the plight of those poor people. Tell them I'll be their answer. His message to him was, look how wonderful and powerful and awesome or awful I am. They're here because they rebelled against all of that and and unless they repent, they can't be restored. So the gospel starts with God, not us. Say, preacher, why are you telling us all this? Well, um, we're on the verge of living in a land just like those exiles lived in. Where we sat down by the rivers and wept because there was no song, because what was is no longer. When the difficulty comes, and maybe you're already facing it, maybe you face it in your job, maybe you face it in your classroom, maybe you faced it from friends, and they mock or they ridicule or they reject. Think about how big God is. I can assure you that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And those of us who by the grace of God have done it before judgment and it is by the grace of God can rejoice and take comfort. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the faithfulness of your word. I pray that as we read through the book of Ezekiel and we we hear him enumerate their sins, I pray that as we read through and we hear the promises of things that will come and how he will restore 
things that probably haven't even happened yet, but that will happen. I pray that in all of it, we will somehow gain this sense of how wonderful and powerful and awesome you are. Maybe it's beyond words. Maybe it's just something we know but we can't articulate. I pray that when that comes and we feel so small and puny, and I know it will be the case, that your Holy Spirit will whisper to us, you're mine. For you're under the blood of of the Lamb. And I pray in that will come peace and confidence. When we struggle, when we struggle because of pressures from the outside, when we struggle because of pressures from within, show us how great and wonderful you are. Remind us that in the end you defeat all the enemies. And that in you we are more than conquerors. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.